What a privilege to gather together like this. Church family, friends, guests, it is good to be with you. I tell you, getting together with God's people and singing his truth and singing praise to him, what a, ha, awesome. If you have a Bible with you, uh, I encourage you to open it up and find the first, the book of First Thessalonians, it's in the New Testament. <clears throat> We're continuing in our series, Bible Basics, Common Questions People Have About the Bible. And uh, if you would like to hear any of the previous messages for, because you missed it or, or you, you wanted to listen to part of it again, you can always go to our website, philida.org, and you can either download the messages or listen, listen to them directly. So far, we have dealt with three questions about the Bible. First one, what is it? Second, who wrote it? Third question, can we trust it? And today, uh, I want to go a step further and raise the question, what should we do with it? It's one thing to know what the Bible claims to be. You know, God's message, men spoke, moved from God, men spoke, moved carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's one thing to know what it claims to be. It's another thing to actually believe that it is what it claims to be. And then it's still another thing to respond to it the way God would have us respond to it, well, to know what to do with it. Because people respond to the Bible in different ways, and they do different things with it. You know, There are, there are people, for example, who scorn it. They scorn it. They, they think it's ridiculous. They reject its claims to be God's message written down for our good and say it's full of fairy tales and contradictions and scientific errors and downright dangerous ideas. And if you were to ask somebody with, with that perspective, what should we do with the Bible? They would probably just say, let's just get rid of it. Let's get rid of it. Throw it on the ash heap of history. Let's be done with it. Then you have other people who, they're not actually hostile toward the Bible. But the interesting thing is that their, uh, their response ends up being not that different. On a practical level, anyway. And what they do with the Bible is ignore it. Just ignore it. Because they're busy with their lives, you know, they're, they're, they're busy going to work, raising their families, uh, trying to achieve prosperity, trying to uh, gain everything that they think will bring them contentment and satisfaction and make them happy, and frankly, the Bible just doesn't enter into that, as far as they're concerned, just doesn't. These are people who might even go to church, might call themselves Christians, might even say that they believe the Bible is the Word of God. But they believe it the same way they believe that the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. How many of you believe that, by the way? Sun is 93 million miles. It's kind of hard to check, but, you know, those who, those who are able to figure those things out. Okay, so you believe the sun is 93 million miles away from the earth. Now, how many of you who believe that, for you, 
that actually makes a difference in how you live your life. Yeah. And there are people who believe the Bible is the word of God like that. It's, it's a fact that they agree with, but it makes absolutely no difference in how they live. Well, as you might guess, those two responses to the Bible, either scorning it or ignoring it, those responses are not what God intends. Uh, he had his message written down for our good. The only way it's going to do us any good is if we respond to it the way he wants us to. What does he want us to do with it? Well, we're going to take a look and find out. We're going to look at the example of some people who did it right, who did what God wanted them to do with his message. They responded the way he wanted them to. So in 1 Thessalonians, so 1 Thessalonians is one of two letters written by the Apostle Paul to some believers in Jesus in a, in a town called Thessalonica in Greece. Thessalonica, uh, that's why, you know, that's where we get this funny name, Thessalonians. Thessalonica is the town, Thessalonians are the people, and Paul wrote a couple letters to them. And so in the first one, Paul is thanking God for the way these people responded to the message, to God's message. When Paul and his co-workers came into town there in Thessalonica, and told them the good news about Jesus, they responded positively. And Paul's thanking God for their response. So let's see what they did with God's message. Okay, so chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel, the good news, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So what did they do with God's message? It says they received it. In other words, they welcomed it. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's look at one more verse that explains it. Uh, just a little ways further. Chapter 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, 
which is at work in you believers. This is what to do with the Bible. This is what to do with this message proclaimed by prophets and apostles and written down for your good. What you do is you welcome it as the very word of God, the very message of God. So don't, don't receive it as just another book, you know, just another book to have on your shelf. Don't, don't treat it as if you would just some collection of mere human opinion, as if, you know, you can just take it or leave it if you like it or not. No. No. Accept it. Welcome it. Regard it as the very Word of God Himself. How do you know if you're doing that? Because I would guess that, you know, if we just took a poll, probably a majority of you would say you, you agree with that. You know, we sang that creed earlier, you know, and you're like nodding your head, yeah, 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 I believe that. And so many of you, most of you maybe would probably say, yeah, I, I, I want to do that. I want to welcome God's word as God's word. Well, how do you know if you're doing that? What does that look like? What do you do when you do that? Well, let's, let's take a little uh, closer look here at this example of what they did and learn from them. They welcomed God's word as God's word. What did, what did they do? How do we follow their example? Okay. Well, when you welcome God's word for what it really is, one thing you do is you don't care what it costs you to get it. You don't care what it costs you. You, you want to get it in spite of what it costs you. Look at the second half of verse 6. It says, you receive the word in much affliction. Well, what, what's he mean? What, what affliction? Well, if you go on and you read the rest of the book, and if you go to the book of Acts, which kind of tells us the history of what happened when Paul and his companions first came into town, what you discover is that a bunch of other people were really upset. They were very angry um, with Paul. They were very angry about this message. And so they formed a mob, and they caused a lot of trouble for anybody who dared believe the message. So here's what it says in Acts 17. And when they, that's the mob, when they could not find them, meaning Paul and Silas, so they're trying to hunt these guys down. Well, then they dragged Jason and some of the brothers. Those were Thessalonian people. They dragged them before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. That's interesting, isn't it? These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And so the, the people who believed were taking a lot of heat uh, by welcoming the message as God's word. And they were harassed, and they were arrested, and they were threatened, and they were fined. 
And this is, this is still happening all over the world today. In many places, like China. I was just reading the other day, I got a prayer request about uh, a group of women who got arrested in China because they had the audacity to teach the Bible without government approval. So now they're arrested. China, India, Sudan, Iran, Pakistan, North Korea, many, many places. People, powerful people, get very upset when they find that your ultimate loyalty is not to them, but to God and his word. And powerful people can make your life miserable. And yet you realize in every single one of those places I mentioned, and the ones I didn't mention, there are people willing to pay any price to have God's word. Any price. I remember when the Soviet Union was first opening up and hearing about a, uh, a guy who took boxes of Bibles, and they were right there in Red Square or whatever it's called, um, and, and they um, were giving Bibles to the people, and they, they just went like that. And there was a guy who came up and wanted a Bible, and he said, I'm sorry, they're all gone. He said, well, could I have the box? Could I just have the box the Bible was in? Willing to pay any price to have God's word. How much is it worth to have God's message? How much is it worth to know God? Who he really is. How much is it worth to know that you are right with him, that you are his child, to experience complete forgiveness of all your wrongs. How much is it worth? How much is it worth to know who you really are? Who you really are, why you exist, what your purpose is, what your true value is, no matter what anybody else says or thinks about you, to know what your true value is in the eyes of the one who made you. How much is it worth to be confident that you will live forever in the glorious presence of God with full, full joy forever? How, how much is that worth? Say, well, you can't know that. Yeah? 1 John 5.13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How much is that worth? You can't put a price on it, can you? You just can't. And you can only have them. You can only have those things if you have God's Word. You know, the, the problem we face is, is very different from people in those other places that I was talking about. For us, the problem is how little it costs us to have the Bible. I mean, if you've if you got a, you know, a smartphone, you can download an app, my version, the Bible app, and, or is it you version? All right. 
The point is, it's the Bible. You can have it for nothing. Nothing. You get the whole Bible on your phone. And because it doesn't cost us very much, we can start to think like, well, it's not worth very much. It must not be worth much. And that is a huge mistake. Welcoming the Bible as God's word means being, wi- being willing to pay any price, whether it's a big price or a very little price. See, for most of us, it just costs us time and energy to, to just take some time and, and get into God's word, make some effort to read it and study it, some willingness to say no to television or, or something else that would distract us so we could give God's word some good undivided attention. I've mentioned this before, but I think it's worth repeating. When, when people say they don't read the Bible because it's too hard to understand, here's what that really means. It means I don't think it's worth the time and effort to understand it. Because it can be understood. But I don't, if, I don't, if I say I, it, it's just too hard to understand, that means I'm not willing to put the time in, the energy in to understand it. And I'm, yet I'm guessing that if somebody who says that received a copy of a will from a long-lost relative and a note from an attorney saying, hey, read this carefully, because if you meet the uh, qualifications here, you will inherit a million bucks. Even if that will is in hard-to-read legal jargon, I'm betting people would put in the time to understand it. Why? Because it'd be worth it. It'd be worth it. It'd be worth the effort. A million dollars is nothing compared to what this book can give you. When you welcome God's word for what it really is, you don't care what it costs you to get it. Time, energy, money, persecution. You want it. What else? So you don't care what it costs you to get it. What else, when you welcome the Word of God for what it is, the Word of God, you, you, you accept it, you receive it with delight instead of duty. More and more, your perspective becomes one of delight rather than duty. Verse 6, You receive the word in much affliction with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit opens up the eyes of your heart to see what a valuable thing God's message is, God's word is, your main attitude toward the Bible becomes one of delight rather than duty. Now, you know what duty is, right? Duty is what you do when you feel obligated to do something even though you don't want to you don't really have any pleasure in it so you know for you what i mean just think about what might be a duty for you like filling out your tax return perhaps um especially if you owe money or mowing the lawn or cleaning the toilet washing the dishes or whatever Now, here's the problem. If your attitude toward doing something is only one of duty, 
then it's not honoring to the person you're doing it for. Because it means your heart's not really in it. <laughs> Tuesday's Valentine's Day, just a little heads up. If you buy the love of your life a Valentine's gift and you sign the card, I only did this because I had to, <laughs> you're in trouble. We're in much bigger trouble if we relate to God and His Word only out of a sense of duty because we have to. See, because if you're focused mainly on your duty, that, that's very dangerous. It means you're focusing primarily on your responsibilities and your faithfulness to your responsibilities. You're focused on you and not on the beauty and worth and glory of God. That's the problem with it. That's exactly what the religious people were doing whom Jesus called hypocrites. He said, you honor God with your lips, but your hearts are far from Him. Now, are there times when you got to do your duty? Are there times when, you know, reading the Bible or hearing the Bible does not feel like a pleasure, it's not something you really want to do, but you do it because you know you should? Are there times when duty must be done? Yes, of course. But let's see that for what it is. It's a problem. It's a problem. See, that's, that's a sign that our hearts are, are weak and our minds are confused. And we're, we're just not appreciating the treasure that we have here. We're not thinking clearly. And our hearts are are just stupidly longing after other things that we think are going to bring us lasting joy, and they never do. And so we never want to say in those times, yeah, I don't really want God's Word. I don't really care about it, but I'm, you know, I'm just doing my duty. I don't ever want to say about those times, well, that's good. That's a good place to be. I'm right where I want to be, just doing my duty for God. No, when all we feel is duty, we need to cry out to God, Father, please open my eyes to see the value of your truth. Pray the words of Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things from your law. Wondrous. There are wondrous things here. Or verse 72, 119. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your word's better than that. <laughs> this is so funny. As a kid, I can remember actually hoping one day I would find a treasure map. You know, the kind of the cartoons, you know, it's got the little dashed line. Goes around the palm tree and over here and... yeah. And then there's a big X, like painted on the ground. <laughs> and if you dig there, you find this, this chest full of gold. Man. Let's say you found that. Let's say you had an actual 
bona fide, genuine, true treasure map. I don't even know if there ever was such a thing or is such a thing, but let's just say you had one. And you knew that if you followed the directions, you would find that treasure chest full of gold and jewels or whatever. Can you imagine reading that thing, trying to understand that with merely a sense of duty? <sighs> I guess I got to read it. I guess I got to try to do what it says. Man, what a hassle. But it's the right thing to do. No way. No way. You'd say, give me that thing. Man, I want to understand this. I want to know what it means. I want this. Because this is going to lead me to something fabulous. This book will lead you to something far more fabulous, far greater. When you really accept it as the very Word of God, then duty gives way to delight. One more. When you welcome God's word for what it really is, you let it redirect your whole life. <laughs> you let it redirect your whole life. Why? Well, because it's the word of the one who made you. It's the word of the one who knows you. It's the word of the one who loves you more than anyone else. And the one who knows exactly what you need to experience lasting joy and satisfaction. Because we don't know on our own. We don't. Yeah. I've been reading a book by Tim Keller called uh, Making Sense of God. It's a great book, uh, especially in wrestling with some of the doubts we wrestle with. If you've got friends who are skeptics, it's just a tremendous book. But he talks about all the progress the human race has made in so many different areas, you know, technology and, and really in many places, you know, overcoming prejudice and oppression and all this stuff. And yet when it gets to the issue of finding lasting peace and satisfaction, we keep trying the same stuff the human race has been trying for thousands and thousands of years, and we're just as unhappy as we've ever been. We keep trying all kinds of things to satisfy that deep thirst for meaning, for purpose, for joy. And we keep coming up short again and again and again. Why? Because we don't know on our own what we're made for. We're just guessing. But God knows. And He tells us right here. And the Thessalonians, they got it. They, they, they changed the direction of their life. Verse, verse 9 says that they turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Now that's a radical change of purpose. And then it says, in verse 10, they began waiting for his son from heaven who delivers us from the coming wrath. That is the coming day of judgment. That's a radical change of hope. Okay, Purpose is why you live your life. Hope 
is what you're looking forward to. And we need both. We need a purpose big enough to live for. And we need a hope big enough to keep us from losing heart and giving up in the midst of this messed up world where so much is wrong and there is so much pain. Well, because these people welcomed God's word into their life as God's word, they now served him. They embraced his agenda. They said, I'm done with my agenda. I'm going to serve the living and true God. His agenda, what's that? It's his worldwide purpose of connecting people to himself, of reconciling people to their creator through his son, Jesus Christ. There's no greater purpose than that. So these people, they weren't pursuing their teeny tiny little purposes, you know, bowing down to idols. Why'd they do that? Well, because that's what they had to do so that they could have enough to eat and, and uh, you know, have enough for the weekend to have fun and all this stuff. And they, they said, no, I'm done with that puny little purpose. Now they were all about changing the world by connecting people to Jesus, Lord of heaven and earth, changing their eternities. Their purpose become, became his, uh, his purpose became their purpose. And because they welcomed God's word into life, now, now they were looking forward to Jesus coming again and making right every wrong. See, because when you read it, uh, you know, who saves us from the wrath to come, well, that sounds really negative, and there, it's definitely negative if that's, you know, if, if you're on the wrong side of that, and Jesus isn't rescuing you from the wrath to come because you don't trust him, yeah, that's, that's negative, but the positive side is that means that's when every injustice is finally ended. And everything that everybody thinks they've gotten away with is finally resolved. And everything that's evil is done away with forever. And lasting justice and joy and peace get ushered in. That's their hope now. And that's so much bigger than anything else you can hope for. Well, what, what are the kinds of things we, we tend to hope for? Well, I hope it's a nice weekend. I hope it gets sunny again. Hope I have a nice retirement. Well, you know, a nice retirement's good. But even if you get it, how long does it last? One day we're all going to enter eternity. That's a lot longer than retirement. And we are going to face either lasting joy or lasting misery based on one thing. Do we belong to the one who rescues from the wrath of God, from judgment? You notice it, it says Jesus who saves us from the coming wrath. The one, what saves us from the coming wrath is not, it's not a thing, it's not a belief, it's not an activity, it's a person. Jesus saves us from the coming wrath. Are, you, are we waiting for him because he's our only hope? He can be our only hope because he's the only one who paid the debt that we owe. He's the only one that took the wrath we deserve. That's what he was doing on the cross. 
And if we trust Him, He says the debt's gone. The wrath is gone. He rescues us. He forgives us. He makes us right with God. He comes into our lives. He will never leave us or forsake us. When He's your hope, nothing can take it away. Nothing. Again, there are a lot of things that can ruin a good retirement. Financial problems, health problems, family problems, you name it. But if Jesus is your hope, it doesn't matter. I, I don't want this to sound glib. Because... It could sound that way. If Jesus is our hope, no matter what happens to us in the meantime, between the time we put our hope in him and the time we see him, and that could be terrible. There are terrible things that can happen to people, including people who love Jesus with all their heart. But no matter what happens, if he is our hope, then our future is secure and we are headed toward our best days. The best days are still ahead of you and we are going to know joy forever in his presence. Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and some of those sufferings are intense, but I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, when you really believe this book is actually God's word, you're going to let it change your purpose. You're going to let it change your hope. You're going to let it redirect your life. Because nothing else makes sense, really, if you think about it. It makes no sense to say you believe this book and then you just keep on pursuing the puny little purposes and the puny little hopes that everybody else is going after. Like in First Peter, it says, be ready to give an account when people ask you, for the reason for the hope that you have. That means I'm supposed to live my life in such a way that people would say, wow, you're different. You've got something I want. Tell me about your hope. And if people aren't asking me, it's probably because, well, I'm putting my hope in the same thing they are with the same results. Doesn't make sense. We were made for so much more. So, This is the question for all of us. Are you welcoming God's word into your life as God's word? You know, I think I started with this. You know, if you you hold this out in front of you and and just believe God just put that in your hands, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? It offers us so much. So, I'm going to ask Tyler to come up here because as a practical way of welcoming God's word into our lives, he's got an opportunity for us. Uh, Oh, there it is. So uh, in two weeks on February 26th, uh, I'm going to be doing a three-hour seminar of an overview of the entire Bible. And the goal is to give you some sort of framework As you read through it, uh, the Bible is a lot like your favorite TV series in one way, and uh, that is that it's telling one overarching story through many little stories or episodes, if you will. And so my goal is to walk us through the large story and the basic framework of Scripture so as you're reading, you can see how wherever you're at in Scripture, how that connects to that larger story. So... 
Uh, it's going to be on the 26th, that's in two weeks, uh, from 11 to 2, so it'll be right after the service, and it's in room 11, which is downstairs right next to the gym. Uh, we are going to provide lunch for free, but there will be a small offering if you um, uh, feel obligated or feel led. <laughs> I guess not obligated because it's a free will offering. <laughs> it makes no sense. Um, but I do, because we are providing lunch, I do need a rough head count. So since you all fill out your Connect cards anyway, right? Um, <laughs> Good one. Um, just write lunch at the bottom with the total number of people that are coming. So for me, I wrote lunch two. That means me and my foxy babe of a wife are going to be coming. So you and whoever else is coming, write lunch plus however many. That way we can get a rough idea. Um, it's not committing you to for sure being there. We're not going to take attendance, but it just lets me know how much to get ready. All right? I'm done. <laughs> Did you say that about your wife just because you had to? <laughs> so there's an opportunity. Now, you know, you, you might have other plans, and you know, we have other groups and classes at that, that same time. And so th- this is not an obligation, but it's an opportunity. If, if you've wanted to get kind of the big picture of the Bible, there's, there's a way you can do that. Um, and the other challenges we've presented you with, uh, bring it when we gather for worship. Bring your Bible, read your Bible, study your Bible with others. And the focus of today, receive it. Receive it as God's Word. Okay, we're going to pray. And then uh, our worship team is going to come up and um, lead us in praising the God who gave us his word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, um, boy, I can sure think of many, many, many times in my life where I have not seen your word to be the treasure that it is, and I have related to it with a sense of duty, and I've not been willing to pay any price, and I haven't let it direct my life the way I should, and I suspect that Many of us in here would say the same thing. Lord, will you help us? Will you, by your Spirit, open the eyes of our heart to see the treasure of your truth and to transform the purpose we're living for, to transform the hope that we have, what we're looking forward to, where we are seeking our ultimate satisfaction. Lord, may we, like the psalmist, long as the deer pants for the water, so our soul longs after you and we pursue you in your word. Help us be that kind of people who are actually living out the truth you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.